Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. You sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. Richard Brooke here with another episode of The Authentic Networker. Today, I have the incredible Terry Jones with me. Terry's a serial entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and proven innovator and digital disruptor. He started out as a travel agent and spent 10 years in product marketing at American Airlines. Then he co-founded, within American Airlines, Travelocity and became their CEO, which he led from a team of six to a $3 billion public company. He also co-founded Kayak.com and was their chairman for seven years until it was sold to Priceline for $1.8 billion. We're gonna be hearing all about Terry's ideas on disruption and innovation today. So let's get this thing off the ground. Terry, welcome, thanks for being here. Hey everybody, Richard here, and I've got somebody I've been chasing for a little bit. He didn't know I was chasing him, but I've been chasing him in my mind for Oh, maybe at least a year. Wow, wouldn't it be amazing if I could get this guy in one of my interviews? I want to introduce you all to Terry Jones, and I'll tell you a little bit about him. But you know, his introduction probably covered it. Hello, Terry. Thanks to the uh, welcome to the Authentic Networker podcast. Richard, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So. You know, you have really an amazing career, Terry. And one of the things I've done in the last week has been diving into your books. This oh, one, I got, I got pretty well all the way through it. Um, I love how it's laid out. It's super inspiring. And I haven't got into disruption yet. Uh, but we'll talk about those books uh, a little bit in the, in the session uh, well, I want to dive into your career at Travelocity and Kayak and everything you're doing now, but I want to start with who was Terry Jones as a kid? And I'm particularly curious, Terry, about your parents and how they raised you to have such a brilliant, can-do, innovative attitude about life and business. Well... You know, I was blessed to have terrific parents and, you know, my, my brother is also very successful and, you know, my brother Duet, who ended up being a National Geographic photographer. Um, he was always the guy who got straight A's, was the president of student council, uh, went to Dartmouth, um, very, very successful, got into Harvard Business School, didn't go, went to UCLA. Um, and became this you know, Academy Award-winning photographer. I was always the guy who got either A's or F's. If I didn't like it, I didn't do it. Um, and, and I didn't want to be him. So uh, we were very different um, as kids. But uh, I credit my mom a lot for making me very curious. She loved to read. And she took me to the library a lot, and she read to me. And I became a reader. Um, you know, I, I'm blind in one eye and I've always been a little overweight. So I was never a sports person very well. I, I was okay at football. I could block, but that was about it. And uh, 
So I, I, I became a reader and I became very curious. And, and my dad uh, was an advertising guy. So we got about 40 magazines a month for free because they were all trying to get his business. Um, and I read everything from the Saturday Evening Post to Successful Farming. I didn't matter wow. what it was. I'd read it. Um, and it, and it gave me this breadth of, of experience and curiosity, which I think helped me a lot. My dad was kind of today, I think he'd be called a maker. He was uh, a ham radio operator and, uh, had learned that when he was 12. And so I helped him build the radios with Heath kits and stereos and stuff like learned, learned a lot about electronics. Um, we were skiers, so we, we worked on our own ski equipment. We built his radio towers in the backyard. We built go-karts. Um, and that kind of got me into building things. We, we'd build bikes out of junk parts. And, uh, and we had a big railroad set in the basement. And then we changed that and built a big dark room. And then we changed that. And, and I wanted to get a printing press because I learned printing at school. And and of course, he knew all the printers in Chicago, so we got a press and a type case of type, and I used to print things. And then we built a chemistry lab, and you know, we always had something going on. Um, so I think they they gave me a, a broad set of knowledge. Um, another thing that, and I didn't actually know this, uh, my brother and I went to the same camp in Canada, uh, as did my great good friend Jeff, who I'm with this weekend. Um, and my dad wanted to go to that camp as a kid, but he, his family couldn't afford it. And one of the reasons we moved back to Chicago was he wanted us to go to this camp. Uh, I went there for 12 summers. It was a canoeing camp in Canada. Uh, it really tested me and pushed me. Uh, I love being out in the woods. I love doing that canoeing. Um, and now I'm chairman of the board of, uh, a camp very similar to the one I went to. And actually a couple of years ago, we bought uh, the old camp that I went to and, and that's part of our portfolio. So I'm kind of back in camping after 50 years and we, we service about a thousand kids a summer and it's very tough canoe trips in the wilderness. Uh, it's great for kids and I love being part of it. And that, that helped shape my life. And in fact, I've just done video interviews with a whole bunch of successful alumni from this camp um, and I asked them, you know, how did, how did camp affect you? And, and most of them said it was the most uh, challenging thing they did in their lives. And it really got them into where they, into their career. It helped make them successful because they overcame these challenges as kids. Yeah. I had um, a similar fortunate experience for, I think, three or four years. I went to Bob Mathias High Sierra Boys Camp and Oh, he was a um, Olympic decathlon. I remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, DeWitt told me that story, Terry, about you circling, circling back. You didn't just buy the camp that influenced your life. You saved it. And well, yeah, it was going down and, and it was owned by a, a former camper. And so another guy and I raised a million bucks and, and, uh, from donors and gave money ourselves and, and saved it. And then we donated it to this other camp. So they now have it. And uh, this is the first summer was, was to be the first summer it's an operation, although we can't get to Canada. So uh, we're actually, we've, we hired a director finally, and we are running trips 
but in the U.S. Uh, right. this, un, under the brand name, but at least we're getting going, and uh, I think there's a real place for that. It's quite, it's much more remote than the other camp. Uh, it's on a pristine lake, and uh, it, it's in a great part of Canada to run trips. So I'm excited cool. to have it back. I almost bought it when I was 21. When I was 21, the camp came for sale. I was a travel agent at the time. And they wanted $100,000. And I managed to raise that from friends and family. Uh, a lot of money in those days. But in the end, the 10 families who were running it, one of them was a lawyer. And he said, well, we want to get paid in the U.S. under the table so we avoid Canadian tax. <laughs> and I said, look, I may end my career as a tax evader, but I ain't going to begin my career as a tax evader. So I went on to have quite a different career than that. But in the end, came back to it. I love that. I love that quote, too. So, Terry, how did you end up? I mean, travel is where you've made a huge mark, and we'll get into that. But how did you end up? I, I think you started as a travel agent, right? Yeah. An actual travel agent? Crazy story. Um, my, I was a history major in college. I had no idea what I was going to do, uh, except I was pretty sure I was going to Vietnam because I had a very low draft number, 1970. <clears throat> they were still taking lots of lots of us over there. And I got rejected from the draft because of my eyes. Um, and so then I didn't know at all what to do. And my college roommate's dad was a pilot for Transworld Airlines. And for those of the audience who don't know, it was the second biggest airline in the world. Um, and he said, I have a free pass. So I'm spending the next year going around the world because after that, I'm going to get my PhD and I'll lose the pass. So another guy and I said, well, we thought we were going to the army. We don't have jobs. We'll go with you. So we spent a year going around the world. In those days, you could buy an around the world ticket for a thousand bucks. We lived on $5 a day, pretty much everywhere, camped out, stayed in hostels, visited, I don't know, 35 countries. It was awesome. Uh, I, I, and when I make graduation speeches, I recommend it all the time because it just opens your mind to the rest of the world, even more important now than 50 years ago. Uh, when I got back, I told my dad, I want to get in the travel business. I, want to, I think maybe I should be a travel agent. He's like, geez, I sent you to college. So I went to school at night. I got a day job and went to school at night to Evelyn Eccles Travel School because in those days you had to write tickets by hand. You had to compute the fares yourself. It was a very different world. And I got hired uh, at a travel agency in Chicago. I was the only person who spoke English as a native language. Everybody else was the Russian desk, the Polish desk, the Caribbean desk. <laughs> I was the receptionist. And I said, where'd you learn your English? I said, well, here, <laughs> actually. Chicago. Um, and six months in, my manager, who ran the Russian desk, uh, said, I've got a backer. Let's go open our own company. So it was my first startup at 21. Um, he was a Korean guy, um, Korean-American. He'd always told the Russians that he was Hawaiian because Russia and Korea, after the Korean War, didn't get on. Um, so when we started the business, he said, you have to go to Moscow and negotiate this contract. There were only four travel agencies in the U.S. at that time appointed to do business with Russia. We wanted to be the fifth. I said, why can't you go? He said, well, I kind of told him I was Hawaiian. <laughs> so, so I went and they, of course, said, where's Charles? And I had to explain and they, I cooled my heels for a week and finally got in to negotiate. We got the deal. And uh, five years later, we had the 50th largest travel agency in the U.S. 
So that was my, my intro to the travel business. All right. And then transition that. How do you end up at American Airlines? Well, what happened was uh, we computerized. Travel agents were just getting reservation computers because pricing for airlines had been deregulated. So everybody before that, and those you may remember this, had the same price. Suddenly prices were different. There was price competition. And so the airlines sold the computers to travel agents so we could figure all this out because prices were changing every hour. Uh, and we got a back office computer as well to do ticketing and reporting for corporations. And we were groundbreaking in that regard. I got into computing and five years in, I, I was a little tired of this travel agency thing. And uh, my boss was bringing more of his family members into the business. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do something else. So I jumped to this computing company doing both sales and installation and training people in accounting and how to use these mini computers, you know, that had five megabyte disks <laughs> and very powerful. And six months into that job, our company was sold to American Airlines. Oh. So now it was part of American. Uh, and this is quite instructive. Rob Crandall, who went on to be chairman, was then VP of marketing. And he came down, he bought us. And he said, I'm going to banish anyone from American from coming to see this company for two years because we will kill you. We like you, but we're too big. And I'm going to send a CFO. I want to watch my money. And that's it. Two years later, they said, OK, now you're ready. You understand budgets. You know, Some of you bought ties. Uh, I wouldn't shave. But other than that, and they moved us to Dallas. And, and when they moved us to Dallas and integrated, uh, the founder of the company wouldn't move. He, he had it in his contract, he didn't have to. So I became the CEO of this division and started my 24 year career at American Airlines. And that division was ended up being like the IT division of Well, American it, Airlines? actually, it's an interesting story. Um, American was really one of the first to, and is a Harvard business case, of automating your sales channel. So we automated the travel agents with our computer system called Sabre, right. heavily modified it. Um, and I was part of the Sabre division, which was in marketing. Um, we, we contracted our services to IT, but I, I became the head of product marketing. So I was doing all the product design of these computer products for the travel agents because I knew travel, I knew what they needed. And we had to change the reservation system a lot. We had to add hotels, we had to add cars. We had to do international affairs. We had to have other airlines. But <laughs> the way the system was designed and the reason they were selling it was if you said, I want to go from Dallas to New York, well, you would see American, 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 American. You might see United on page 27. Right. And United system, of course, worked to their benefit. Eventually, the Justice Department sued us for antitrust. They said, well, you can't list things that way. And we said, it's our system. They said, you can't do that. And we said, it's alphabetical order. And that didn't work for United, it worked for us. So we lost that case. I love that. <laughs> but, but by that time, we had 40,000 travel agents around the world on this system. And they said, you can charge for people to be in it. So overnight, we were a billion-dollar business. So there's a great quote that says, if the startup gets the distribution before the incumbent gets the innovation, the startup wins. And in that case, we had was a land grab. So we're in this multi-billion dollar business. I got moved to run product marketing and I did that for a few years. And then my boss, who at that time 
was also the CIO, said, I want you to go run 500 programmers. I said, I don't know anything about that. He said, you'll do fine. Go do that. So I was terrified. I went over there and figured out how I could add, taught him about quality and, you know, taught him a lot of things, I hope. And I learned a lot of things. And after three years of doing that, he said, well, I want you to go run computer operations. That was 2,000 people, a $350 million budget. Uh, I said, I don't know about computer ops. Oh, yeah, you'll be fine. So I did that for three years, lost my hair uh, running that, those computer systems, um, and then uh, became CIO. And we actually spun the computer division out of American and took it public as Sabre because uh, yeah. it was a multi-billion dollar business, I think $4 billion maybe at that time. Was that the genesis for, I know there's a great Travelocity story in here right. in a so year that's or two. Next. So. so, well, what happened was I was CIO. It was sort of a lousy job. It was like conducting an orchestra where they all hated you. And it was just difficult. And I did it for a while. And one of the, we'd had an online product called Easy Saber that was on CompuServe and Prodigy and, and those networks, AOL. And the tra- we'd had it for several years. You could, you could make a reservation, but you couldn't buy a ticket. You still had to buy the ticket from the travel agent because travel agents were our customers. And one day the travel agents woke up and said, you should turn that off. You know, you're selling bullets to the enemy. And Crandall, the boss, said, no, let's just hide it over in IT. We'll give it to Jones. He used to be a travel agent. He'll know what to do with it. So I had it over there and I didn't exactly hide it. The first thing I said is, why isn't it on the internet? And so we put it on the internet that became Travelocity, started to grow. And I said, you know, I'd like to go do that. Can I do that instead of being CIO? And everybody said, well, you're nuts. There's only like 15 people and you're running this huge organization. I said, no, I think it'll be interesting and fun and big. So I did, I resigned as CIO, went over to do that. Um, And I ran it for six years. Uh, We spun it out, took it public. It became a $1.2 billion IPO. Yeah, that's a, that that's enough. That's enough of a success story. But then, well, then, then book, you have to make in, in it, on innovation. I should tell the listeners is really the story of that, and it talks about entrepreneurship, which is very different than entrepreneurship. I've done VC backed startups as well, and it's quite different. You know how how do you how do you keep the corporation from killing you? Is really what the book is right. about. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I love that. And you know, a lot of credit to Crandall for uh, allowing, creating an environment to nurture that and empowering you to nurture it and giving Absolutely. you the green lights. Yeah, he he really provided the air cover, as did Max Hopper, my my direct boss, uh, to to let us grow because you know we were in direct competition with the rest of the business. Right. Yeah. They didn't like that, and we were losing tons of money. And at one point, we even had a debate, an actual sort of Harvard debate, pro and con, keep Travelocity, sell Travelocity. I was not allowed to participate. Um, thankfully, keeping Travelocity won. And years later, I asked the, uh, my boss, you know, how, how did you, what would you have done if we lost? And he said, well, I, I would have found some way to keep it. But, um, you, you know, this way, we got all the baloney out on the table and people stopped bitching. You yeah. know, they, they, we had all decided as a team to keep it. And that, that's really important to do because otherwise people are sneaking around and they're trying right. to knife you here and there. And, 
you know, I had to move out of the building to build my own culture. I had a separate budget. Um, we had a separate dress code. We did a lot of things. I put a sign up in front of the building that said Travelocity. And I got a call one day from the facilities people. They said, you can't have a sign. No divisions have their own signs. All American Airlines. I said, but nobody can find us. We're over here in this strip mall. No. So I ignored them. And about a week later, this guy came with a hacksaw and he sawed it down. And we had no sign. But that was the day they were spreading concrete in the parking lot, resurfacing. So I sent one of my artists out and they drew this huge Travelocity logo about 20 feet long in the concrete. And then it's <laughs> so they couldn't do anything after it was there. Sometimes you just have to, what does Steve Jobs say? It's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. Yes. <laughs> we were pirates. So I don't know how long ago it was. You'll know exactly, but I'm going to guess it was 10 years ago. I personally had a breakthrough in my own travel, Terry, because I would always, I've always had my EA do my travel, but there's always this, you know, back and forth between us on email, you know, what about these flights? What about those flights? And I, my, I micromanage my travel. Like I, no. I'm like, oh yes, I, I, you know, don't make me do sit too. in an airport for four hours. And right. I don't even like going the wrong direction, right? If I'm going East coast to West coast, I don't want to deviate. I don't want to go backwards. It's a feng shui thing. I don't know. And you're around the world. <laughs> price is not the most important thing. The right oh. equipment and the right schedule. That's the most important thing. And I don't know when it was about 10 years ago, probably because I, at that time, uh, not so much today, but at that time I used to read like 50 magazines a month. Interesting. And I think I found it in a magazine, this app called Kayak. And I immediately downloaded it and started playing with it. And it was a tremendous breakthrough in my own personal travel because what it allowed me to do is send my, I could send her, you know, hey, here's what I'm looking for, this kind of route. And so she started using Kayak and then she would send me, you know, here's three options and saved a lot of time and energy and heartache on travel. Nothing worse than being on a long trip and you're stuck with a nightmare you can't unravel. Exactly. So if, if people paying attention to your introduction know you are also the founder of Kayak. How did that happen? Well, I'm a co-founder. Um, what happened was uh, Travelocity eventually got bought back by Sabre. They thought it was too important to their future to leave it public because I was running the public company for the shareholders, not for them. So I would right. do things they didn't like. So they bought it back. And I decided they were going to screw it up and I better leave. Uh, they did because they later sold it for $280 million. And I told you it went public for a billion too. So they destroyed a billion dollars of value by putting finance back in finance, sales back in sales. No, Nobody was nimble anymore. And they're fighting against you know Expedia, which was owned by Microsoft and then spun out and Priceline. So they weren't nimble enough. And, and so I left. So I was looking for what to do. I became a public speaker. My brother got me into that. I joined a lot of boards. I've now served on 20 corporate boards. Um, and I was working at a VC firm and looking for travel investments. And we said, I had been on the board of Overture, which was one of the very first search companies we sold to Yahoo. We said, well, why isn't there a vertical search for travel? Just search. Because Travelocity was converting about 5% of arrivals into sales. That means 95% of the people were buying somewhere else. That's kind of normal in e-commerce. But we found a lot of those people were using us as a directory and then going right to the airlines. Right. So we said, why don't we build a site that does that? 
that just searches everything. But when you click, you can buy an American or you can buy a Priceline. It's up to you where you buy. We're just a search and we will charge them a click-through fee like Google. So we found a company that did that. Um, we were going to buy them, but we didn't like their management and their IT wasn't that great. And the VC, Joel Cutler, General Catalyst said, I'll fund it. Let's, let's do it. So he went out and found Steve Hafner, the CEO, and Paul English, the CTO, and I became chairman of the board. And it was an eight-year terrific ride. Uh, the CTO, brilliant guy, designed that interface that you see, which is so fast, yeah, so flexible. Um, and it did an interesting thing. We didn't have a phone bank for complaints because search companies don't, but we did get emails. And all the emails went right to the engineers. We didn't have customer service. Now, you might say, well, they're expensive. They're wasting their time. No, our slogan was give the pain to the people who cause the pain. <laughs> so it's a very short feedback loop. And when we rolled out mobile, we thought that mobile would be about next flight out or a hotel for tonight. My, my, my speech ran over, whatever. Wasn't turned out not to be true. People were using mobile just like the desktop. But back then in the early days of mobile, no one knew that. So if we hadn't had those short feedback loops, if we hadn't listened, we wouldn't have 65 million people using that app today. Um, so it was, it was a terrific ride. Um, you know, I was chairman, so I wasn't there every day, but I got to give a lot of input and, and, uh, we eventually took the company public, um, and Priceline had wanted to buy us before we were public, but we couldn't agree on a price. So we went public and then there was no argument. It was like 30% over the stock price. And that was a billion eight. So that was a terrific exit as well. <laughs> Pretty, that's that's a pretty good run from the canoe camp, Terry. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, I did another startup after that. I got a call from Ginny Rometty, the chairman of IBM, who I'd known through speaking. And she said, will you come and teach IBM Watson about travel? And I said, well, is there any money in it? And she said, no. <laughs> but come up anyway. You know, well, the chairman of IBM calls. I figure I'm going to get money somehow. Right. So I went and uh, did some consulting with them, and that turned into a startup around AI, which IBM invested in, and we ran for four years. Uh, it failed. Um, we were too early, and travel, interestingly, is dead last of all industries in deploying AI, which is a disappointment. Right. But you would like this. Our One of our user interfaces was to be able to say, I want to go to London tomorrow after 4 p.m. in a wide-body jet I want an aisle seat with a life flat bed and just say that in English. Oh, wow. How beautiful would that, that be? <laughs> well, yeah, we could do that. But the airlines, the airlines weren't ready for that. And now you have to go to Seat Guru and Gate Guru and four different airlines and figure it out. Well, there's no reason that uh, you can't do that. In fact, I'm working with a guy right now who's doing, you've seen the Matterport uh, 360s that they have in houses, right? The 360 views in a yeah, house. Sure. Yeah. He's got that for every airline seat now. Wow. So you can really see. And the idea is to show you if you're in the last seat of coach, this is your, this is your cell, but this is business class. <laughs> it gets you to move up. And so we're thinking of, of using natural language, which is, you know, a revolutionary computer interface to be able to speak to it, right. uh, to, to allow those kind of choices. So working in AI for four years, it's too bad it failed, but, you know, 75% of startups do. 
One of the quotes that I enjoyed in your book was, uh, I'll paraphrase it, that the only thing that's um, evolving faster than technology is customers' expectations. Yes. And so when you, t when you talk about that uh, AI, you know, 360, just speak it in, you get to, you know, see the whole thing like you would see a house you want to buy or you ought to do it for hotel rooms too. And up, you know, like the whole thing designed to upgrade people to a nicer room or a nicer. Absolutely. Uh, Actually, I just uh, am considering being an advisor to a company that's doing just that. And one of the things they want to do, because hotels are trying to how to figure out how to compete with Airbnb and Airbnbs yeah. are all unique. So a lot of hotels have had interesting guests, you know, John Lennon stayed here or, you know, Michael Porter stayed in this room, whatever it is. Well, they're allowing them to, they're doing 360s and saying, decorate that room and we will help you sell that room because you can't do that through Expedia or Travelocity. They send a generic two bedroom with a picture. Right. But Mr. Hotel, you can sell these experiences and they're actually, when you book, you can, if you wish, buy out the room, you own it. And later, if you want to resell it and take the profit, you can, but you That's own great. that room. Uh, so kind of, kind of a, an evolution of the hotels that, you know, they used to name the rooms based on who used to stay there a lot. Right. I was in the Lauren Bacall room at the Baylor Hotel last week. Yeah. Um, and, and, but they couldn't sell it that way. Right. And so what's interesting is, and, and my, my book, Disruption Off, talks about this, it's not only innovation in technology, it's innovation in business models. I mean, who, who would think that you could create a billion dollar company by getting people to subscribe for razors? Right. <laughs> right? Or Philips Technology just went to Schiphol Airport and said, we're not gonna sell you light bulbs anymore, we wanna sell you light. Everybody's like, what? And we want a 20 year contract to light the airport. And they have the data now to do that, of course, they put in longer lasting bulbs and cheaper bulbs and they recycle the bulbs and they pay for the power and they have. Now, so what do they sell? An outcome. Right. Lots of companies are now selling outcome. Uh, GE Engines is selling how much uptime do you want? Much more profitable than selling iron. Right. So part of innovation today is saying, well, am I going to be a platform, a subscription, an outcome? And, you know, kayak. All we wore was a thin layer between the customer and the supplier that was better than what they had. And we got the distribution before they got the innovation. Everybody now has filters, but we did it first. Yeah. And it because I think that's so brilliant, the quote about consumers' expectations, the consumer demand for technology is it's all pent up. And so when somebody nails a better way to do something, there's this instant uptake into the consumer demand because they're so ready for it. Well, it's, it's not only that, and I agree with you totally, but look at Tesla. Did you like the last Tesla ad you saw? Wasn't it cool? <laughs> You've never seen a Tesla ad, right? <laughs> intensely know. loyal fans, and it's mostly because of the user interface of the car. Right. It's, you know, when they sit in the car, the door closes, the car's ready to go, and if I'm in a garage, it knows they have to go backwards. I mean, they just look you know, at the end point of the consumer and design the car that way because it's all software. And the other point about it is that is a cloud connected car. So therefore they not only are watching what I do, but they're improving it every couple of months. 
Right. So now, you know, John Deere has cloud connected tractors. They don't have to wait for the annual convention to ask the tractor dealer, what's going on in Iowa with the farmers this year? They know every minute and they can re-delight the customer because they know what the customer's doing. Yeah. So cloud is about instant learning from your customers. And if you add AI to that, the AI is learning 24 by 7, 365. So if you have an AI and your competitor doesn't, he's never going to catch you because he can't learn that fast. Right. So tell us about your books. Uh, which one did you write first, off or innovation? I wrote on innovation first. And that's what I was speaking about at the time. It's an unusual format. As you said, it's 72 three-page chapters. I love so it's it. short form media. It's what we're used to today. You can read it front to back, back to the front. It's a cookbook. It really talks about culture and team and idea selection and idea generation um, with a lot of examples. And it also goes through the whole example of, of entrepreneurship. And then, you know, I started listening uh, as I was as a speaker and more and more people are talking about digital transformation and digital disruption. So I thought, okay, let's write a book on disruption. I'm, I've got a speech and I wrote my speech basically. Uh, disruption Off is the book. Same format, short form media. Um, it goes through 10 technologies from AI to cloud to drones to big data to 3D printing and gives you industry examples. Then it talks about business models and then it talks about what to do. You know, how can I avoid being disrupted or become a disruptor myself? And the, the number one thing I talk to companies about is take more risk. The problem is that every company was founded by a risk taker. But once it gets big and you got to do the quarterly earnings, well, let's not try this. Let's, let's not rock the boat. You know, we'll just stay the way we are. Well, you can't, particularly not today. I mean, the companies that will succeed coming out of COVID are the ones who transform themselves during COVID because the world changed. Yeah. In my new speech, I, I tried out yesterday. If you've seen the play Hamilton, Jefferson comes back and has a wonderful song, What I Miss, because he was gone for seven years, right? Well, my speech is, what did I miss during COVID? Did, did you miss the fact that Shell announced peak oil? They're not going to pump as much anymore. And they're, and they're installing 50,000 car chargers, electric. GM announced the end of the internal combustion engine. Tesla's worth more than every other car company combined, right? <laughs> did you miss that the FAA approved drone delivery um, or telehealth, right? I mean, there's a lot of did you miss that happened that if you didn't get up with it, keep up with it, you're going to be in trouble coming out of COVID. Yeah. Speaking of COVID, um, you're doing some top secret. It can't be that top secret. I learned about it. Um, uh, uh, travel visa uh, or the COVID visa stuff. Tell us about yeah. that. Whatever you well, can. I've, tell us I've been just as a travel person trying to get travel started again. And, and worldwide, Every country is going to require some proof of testing or vaccination. Now, we've had the yellow vaccination card for those of us who travel the world for years. This is just a digital version of it because in these days, it's too easy to copy a piece of paper. Right. Um, so every country is going to have it except the U.S. Um, the federal government said no. 13 states have said they're terrible, they're tyranny, they're awful. They're not. They're just the same thing that your kid has to do when he goes to school just to prove he's been vaccinated. Now, um, the, the best statement I heard about him was from an English ethicist who said, 
They should be used for international travel. They shouldn't be used to get a bottle of milk. I agree with that. Somewhere in between is the line. So in Israel and Denmark, they're using them. Well, Israel is using them for restaurants. That's relatively rare. Denmark's using them for museums um, and for concerts. France is using them for concerts and sporting events. New York is using them for sporting events. because And the NFL is going to use them, which I think will change a bunch of people's mind because they're saying, hey, I don't want 10,000 people in my stadium. I want 30,000. So if they've been vaccinated or tested, I can pack them in and make more money. And how do, you, how do you how do you deal, Terry, with this segment of the population that for, you know, could be religious beliefs or their own personal sure. convictions or in my wife's case, you know, she her doctor advises she should not be vaccinated because of a reaction she had. How do you accommodate yeah. the segment of the population that no matter what Fauci says, <laughs> they've got yeah. Fauci fatigue well, they're not right. going to get vaccinated no, no matter it. what. So, so that's why it in general won't be used in the U.S. for, you know, we're not going to do the restaurant thing. Um, but, you know, it, it, for example, yesterday I was speaking to meeting planners. And in large meetings, it's fairly simple. You just have a hybrid meeting. Say, look, if we're going to close down and say it's only tested and vaccinated people because we want to have 10,000, and you can't come either because you chose not to get vaccinated or you can't join us virtually. Yeah. And eventually that'll be over. You know, it's not forever. It's just like, hey, we couldn't have meetings at all six months ago. So right. it's a transition to something bigger. But traveling abroad, they don't really care. Your wife just isn't going to be able to go until, mm -hmm. the, until COVID is over. She's not going to be able to go. She's not vaccinated. Now, she can get tested. And right. in some countries, that's enough. But most are saying if you're tested, you still have to quarantine for two weeks because the right. testing doesn't. So you spend your true. two weeks vacation quarantine. Exactly. So you're going to be traveling in the U.S. Um, every cruise ship, every cruise line right now, except for Carnival, has already said you have to be vaccinated to cruise. And they have to do that because people are terrified to go on a cruise ship. So yeah. they're willing to trade off. And most of their customers are over 50 and now, you know, tremendous percentage of people in the U.S. over 50 have been vaccinated. So they're just going to have to do that for a while to get people to come back, because otherwise I wouldn't go on a cruise ship. And, and I want to know everybody around me has been vaccinated, too, because the cruise right. ship is like a Petri dish. Right. It's just so we just going to have to put up with some of this. Uh, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, well, I'm vaccinated. My husband is, but my kids aren't. Can I go to Europe? No. You can't, not, not now. Well, not right now, 180 countries have been recommended we don't go to. There's nowhere to go right now. Um, but that will change. So I'm just saying, look, this is just a digital form of something we've been doing forever. Um, it's not tyranny. It's just another form of identification. And we've had it for years. Right. Um, I used to run a visa service. You know, we had to prove that people had cholera, yellow fever, malaria shots, all that stuff. Um, and it's not going to restrict your freedom in the U.S. It's not going to be used for domestic travel or restaurants or anything else. But there are places you know, where corporations have the right to say no shirt, no shot, no service. They have that right. And, you know, they won't do it if they lose too much business. They will do it if they can pack their stadium. Right. So it's important that they be secure um, and they be accurate and, and, and use, accept paper as well. I mean, the ACLU says they should be paper first. No, 
86% of Americans have a smartphone. Let's make it smartphone first, and but paper is acceptable. Right? Right. The ACLU said it should never connect with the government. Well, then it won't work very well when you go to France or anywhere else. And you're going to have to show the paper anyway. So come on, let's be realistic. It should be secure and private and widely available and free. And so that's all I'm doing is trying to work with travel organizations and governments to get this moving because there are eight hour lines at Heathrow right now, eight hours. They're wow. checking everything manually. The U.S. isn't doing that. The U.S. is putting it all on the airlines. So if the airline checks you coming in to the U.S., you're in. They don't, there's no double check. And amazingly, if you come in by land at the Mexican border, there's no check at all, which I just found out, which seems odd. If you fly in, you have to be checked. But if you drive in, you don't. One of those is wrong. Well, <laughs> Canada, the same thing. Like if you go into, into Canada, um, like I have friends in Hawaii who live in Canada. If they fly into Canada, they have to quarantine. Um, but they could fly into Seattle and take a limo across the border and <laughs> they go right home. It's so we, we've got some holes in our bucket, but um, look, I, the vaccine is a wonderful thing for those who can take it. Um, you know, it made me get on an airplane yesterday and go to a meeting and, and you know, travel with confidence. And you know, so hopefully people can and some people don't. I get it. Um, uh, but hopefully enough people will that we can end this thing. Right. Uh, but it's going to happen again. You know, we'll have yeah. something different. So right now, yeah, no doubt it'll happen again. I think one of the part of the resistance that people have, Terry, is most people in at least in the United States grew up with most of these restrictions, these badges, these certifications, these licenses all baked in to the paradigm, <laughs> whether it's a driver's license or a, a passport right. or, you know, these are all. We grew up with these and maybe a lot of people in this country, this like the uh, vaccine passport, that might be the first time that they've been required to do something that they think inhibits their freedom and their rights yeah. because well, it's been I a long time since we had to do something like this, but there's a lot I of it know. already in play, right? You can't drive a car sure. without a driver's license. I remember when seatbelt came out and I went with my dad and we looked at the seatbelts and the car dealer said, well, we can put them under the seat. Don't worry about right. it. <laughs> I always used one. I mean, you know, it's like helmets. People wear them now. So uh, I was quarantined as a kid. We had, my brother and I had something, I don't know where the scarlet fever, chicken pox, they came and nailed something up in the door and my dad couldn't come home. And that wow. was it. Wow. We stayed in the house. That, that's then there used to be back when I was a kid and they still had polio you know, if you had a train coming along from somewhere that was a hotspot of polio and people want to get off the train and people yeah, say, no, yeah. stay on the train. Yeah. We don't want you. because. And I think Americans haven't had that kind of fear of disease since the 50s, since early polio. Yeah. We've killed all those diseases. And right. what's amazing about this vaccine is, is basically they built it in software. The Chinese released the DNA profile about a month out Two months later, we had the vaccine. Now, we had to test it for a year, but they figured it out. And now this same mRNA is going after cancer. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating. That, you know, at least we're catching up to the viruses that are coming out in a new way. Because if we had to wait six or seven years, I mean, yeah, we'd be in big trouble. Break down and we would have millions of people dead, right. millions more. 
Hey, Terry, so, uh, most of the people that most of the people that watch this uh, or listen to this podcast are entrepreneurs, and we talked about a lot of fascinating things. I want to make sure my entrepreneurs get a nugget or two, and I know you. I know you have a couple besides the seventy-two that are in your book. Um, <laughs> and I love the frisbee story, by the way, because that's happened to me so many times. So many times. You got to read the book to learn the frisbee story. Can you drop a couple of nuggets on this audience? Um, like if you could boil down everything you've learned in the last 50 years in business and networking and people and yourself, what's the most important thing you've learned that when you implemented it, big things happened? You set a pretty high bar. Uh <laughs> Well, you know, look, I, I think for entrepreneurs, um, if you're thinking about your company, build your company, I would say, don't hire your best friend, hire the best person. Um, as a VC, the first thing we look at is the team. The team is more important than the idea because the idea will change. You know, what you think is going to happen isn't going to happen exactly as you think it's going to happen. So that wonderful up and to the right chart you have in the Excel spreadsheet is all BS. It's not going to happen. Um, it's about the team and it's about your flexibility and ability to change along the way because it's a curvy road to success. There's no straight road to success. And so having the right team, having the right idea is important. And then as I look at all these decks of all these companies, you know, it's, it's like then a miracle occurs. We have a million customers. Well, how do you get them? They seem to leave out the customer attraction page. <laughs> it's critical. And in some cases, it takes a lot of money. In other cases, it doesn't. But, you know, how you're going to do it. I mean, I, I reviewed a deck yesterday morning. It was for a medical device company. And they really didn't have that page. But they had it down. They figured out it was a B2B business. They'd already hired some very experienced, older bag carriers who knew everybody in the medical device business. Okay, that's fine. If you're a consumer product, maybe it's something else. A kayak, it was search. At Travelocity, it was consumer advertising. How are you going to get those people in there? Because there are only a couple of Airbnbs and Teslas where they don't have to advertise because it's so good. Yeah. You know, it just becomes viral. It's, it's very rare. Um, so, I, and I think, you know, continuous experimentation and taking risk. At kayak, 20% of what you see every day is a test. We are constantly testing generally failing, but continuously learning. So the customer in these, in these cloud-connected apps or in cloud-connected products, they're constantly telling you what they like and don't like. You know, there's a wonderful story in Wired about a guy, a Hasidic Jewish guy in New York, one of those electronic shops on Third Avenue. Yeah. And he's called the Amazon Whisperer. So he reads the bad reviews of electronic products and then fixes them. So he goes through and said, I can make a better shower radio. I just fix all that stuff and bring it up. And said, hey, it doesn't leak. It doesn't do this. It doesn't do that. So, you know, he's winning by listening. Um, I, I had customers who say in my speech as well, I don't want to put reviews on my website because I might get a bad one. My answer is, you sucked before. You just didn't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> so continuous customer feedback is, is so critical. Um, particularly in startups, because you're not going to get it right out of the gate. You know, it just isn't going to work. The Tesla Roadster is nothing like the Model 3. Um, 
you know, uh, th these products all evolved radically. Um, but you have to have the vision to, to push forward, to, to keep, you know, keep your principles clear. Um, you know, Steve Jobs' idea was a thousand songs in your pocket. And that, that became the iPod. Um, and who wants a thousand songs in your pocket? Well, sometimes you have to lead the consumer along. You know, if you'd said to people years ago, well, you need to buy a $200 device that reheats pizza and makes tea. They said, well, what? Well, who doesn't have a microwave, right? Right. <laughs> Remember when they started selling them and they said you can cook a roast beef in it? That was a total failure. <laughs> that was awful. <laughs> but we figured out in the speedy world, you know, that that's what we got to have. So you have to hang in with your products for a while. Sometimes you're too early. I, I spent a million dollars at Travelocity creating fare-driven availability. So rather than say, I want to go on July 1st, you'd see the ad for the $100 fare, you could click it, and it would show you what day you could actually get the $100 fare, because you could never do that when you called the airline. Newspapers loved it. Nobody used it. Wow. Nobody. Today, every airline has one. It was just too early. People were still figuring out how to put their credit card in. <laughs> it's just, I'm always trying to push the envelope. But sometimes you're too early. Uh, I was too early with Wayblazer, my AI company. It happens. But, you know, if you're flexible and you have the right team who, who has the courage of their convictions, you can be successful. What's the biggest mistake you've made, Terry? Either a one-time blunder or a bad habit? Well, blowing that million bucks wasn't too good. I've done that a couple of times. Um, I think not terminating people soon enough. Uh, you know, not seeing performance that just wasn't going to change. And, and in this one case to travel outside, I did hire a friend and he couldn't keep up and he was a friend. And I didn't, you know, nobody ever says, well, I fired him too soon. You don't say I fired him too late. Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, having the courage to make that decision to say, you know, let, let us help you do something else uh, is real important, particularly in a small team. Uh, it's very hard to do, particularly if you hired your friends, which is one reason I try not to do that anymore. Um, I think that can be a real mistake. Um, and, you know, sometimes uh, you'll, you'll, as I said, you'll have a product that's too early or you won't listen well enough. Um, and, and I now try to listen well enough. And sometimes it's just luck. You know, try, uh, Expedia brought out air, car, hotel combined in a dynamic package at a discounted price. They doubled their sales in two quarters. We were off doing cruises. Well, their, their thing was better. Nobody knew in those days. So that was maybe part smarts and a lot of luck. Uh, and it takes a lot of luck in the entrepreneurial business. Yeah. Sometimes. And the more shots you fire, the more likely are you to hit something. Well, that, you know, that's why VC companies know I'm only, you know, only 25% of my companies leave and not die much less make me a billion dollars. So it's, it's a very, very narrow pyramid at the top. Um, and, you know, I, I interviewed a company the other day where they're raising a million bucks and the guy said, that's all we need to get to profitability. Should we go talk to VCs? I said, hell no, the VCs will make you exit. If you can get a million dollars from friends and family, you'll have a choice. You can pay dividends and that could be your family business because it's only gonna be, that business is only gonna be about a 25 or $30 million business. So it's VCs wouldn't care anyway. So don't, don't take their money because they want to exit. Now, if you think you're going to be a billion dollar business, they do too. Yeah, take their money all day long. 
Um, but, you know, it's changing so fast between private equity and SPACs. You know, SPACs are almost over. Right. <laughs> that months. happened quick. <laughs> oh, around for six months. I was asked to be in a board of SPAC and a month later I said, too late. Never mind. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the world is changing very, very quickly. And you really have to keep your ear to the ground and, and experiment and know that you're going to fail. But if you kill, pro here's another one, you know, is kill projects, not people. So, you know, if, if, if Terry gets blamed for the product failure, Terry ain't ever going to take a chance again. And neither right. is anybody else. Right. And most likely it was the idea that failed, but you learned something. So move on. Now, if I fail five times, then kick me to the minor leagues. I get it. But um, you, you should just say, hey, we learned something. What did we learn? Why, why do sports teams watch game films? Not to assess blame, to ensure right. victory next time. You know, and, and they get that and they look at all the numbers and business has to do that too. dissect why you fail, learn, move on, try again. Edison said, I never failed, but I found a thousand light bulbs that didn't work. Right? So I think. So Terry, what you're doing now, besides serving on boards and looking at, looking at the next big Travelocity or kayak is you're doing a lot of speaking and yeah. writing where can people best follow you and find you? Well, uh, first of all, tbjones.com. T is in Tom, B is in boy. Jones.com. Terry Jones will take you to Monty Python, so don't go there. Um, <laughs> tbjones.com. And uh, there you can buy books. Uh, and you can really see a lot of different videos. There, there is a video there about entrepreneurship, about my journey. And, and it's done in the context of why startups fail. Uh, the top 10 reasons why they fail. And uh, number one, no market need. Nobody cares. <laughs> Invented the motorized egg chopper or whatever. Um, so they can do that there. I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook, of course. Uh, and I'd be happy to come and speak. Uh, I've become a pretty accomplished virtual speaker. I built a studio in my house and did 47 virtual speeches last year. And they're not the little guy in the corner of Zoom. There's sophisticated video productions that people say it's like being there. Right. Um, and I, I really think going forward, you know, yesterday the meeting planner said, well, our business is to bring people together at a hotel. I said, well, you're nuts. Your business is to create connections between people that have results. How that happens is changing, guys. You better not reject video meetings because CFOs love them. Yeah, the attendance goes up tenfold and the cost goes down tenfold. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and even virtual trade shows work like crazy. Um, they, they had good results. So I talked to a division, a former division of GE that spun out. They have 100,000 consultants. They're taking their travel budget from 100 million to 50. And they're consultants. I mean, it's changing, folks. So I said, why don't you step back? And particularly for corporate meetings say, okay, what's the result they want? And what's the right way to be that? It might be, hey, the Europeans go to Paris, the Asians go to Tokyo, everybody else goes to Denver and we connect them when we need to, or it might be all virtual. Or if you're a trade association, maybe it is about getting together um, because you're making decisions in a way that you need all the people there or some of them. But they were all pretty opposed to virtual meetings. Oh, they're more expensive, they're difficult. Baloney. 
I think easy. they sound they sound to me like travel agents in 1980 talking about travel 1995 talking about travelocity. Oh, travelocity will never sell cruises. Wrong. <laughs> you got to change. Well, Terry, you are a, a, a fascinating listen and watch. I could listen to you all day. You have a million stories and a million lessons. I'm excited to uh, dive into the second book, Disruption. And um, you, you and DeWitt are the first brothers I've ever interviewed. Which is pretty, you guys have a, each have a fascinating story and I look forward to connecting next time you come to Hawaii. Well, thank you. I'm actually coming at the end of the month, at the end of May. So I'll send you oh, my good. dates. I'm coming to Lanai, so we'll get together. And DeWitt and I actually occasionally speak together. So he'll open on creativity and I'll close on innovation because you need both, right? And a little disruption thrown in. So uh, we, we, either of us or singly or together, would be happy to speak at, at a conference that anybody has virtually or physically. And it's been a great pleasure to be with you, Richard. Thank you so much. You bet, Terry. And thank all of you for listening. Remember, share this with your team, share it with your network. Curiosity leads to education. Education leads to a better life. Thanks for tuning in to The Authentic Networker. We'll catch you next time.